This is Jennifer Gavin with the Library of Congress. Today we're pleased to be speaking with singer-songwriter Bonnie Raitt on the occasion of the Library of Congress receiving the papers of her father, the legendary Broadway singer and actor John Raitt, and also on the launch of a website dedicated to his life and work, johnraitt.com. Ms. Raitt, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm very pleased to be here, Jennifer. Thank you. Um, you were born into a family in which singing and performing were really part of the furniture. Your mother, Marjorie Haydock, was a noted pianist, and your dad, of course, had already made the leap from light opera in California to Broadway in New York by the time you were born. Um, tell us a little bit about your early memories of your father. Of course, he'd already been Curly in Oklahoma and played Billy Bigelow in Carousel, which was a role that was pretty much written for his amazing voice. Uh, when you were uh, either not born yet or a very small child. But he was uh, still going strong on Broadway, of course, and really getting into the thick of his career when you were a young child. Can you talk about that a little bit? It was it was wonderful for my brothers and myself to be able to have a dad that was around all day and play with us and, and take us to school and wash the car and hang out and do the, you know, climb trees with us. And then at night he would get in his car and drive off to work, unlike most dads. And, and what he did when we got to go in with him, uh, occasionally, even though we were, you know, like six and eight and four, um, my older brother and I got to go in and hang out backstage. So what, what it was like for us was just we couldn't believe this was that this guy who played this heroic, wonderful part of Pajama Game that had so much fun backstage. I mean, the, the, the excitement of the cast warming up and the orchestra tuning up and my dad sitting there with Eddie Foy, another cast member, putting on their makeup. I mean, you to, to have that as a child and as you're, you know, to, to be able to share in that was such a thrill. And, you know, he just was having such a great time. It didn't seem like work to us. And, and I'm sure that was not lost on me when I ended up choosing to do this for a living as well. So it was a thrill and, and the camaraderie backstage and the support and the enthusiasm, and then, of course, to sit in the audience and watch the magic that happened every night was just an incredible gift. Well, and of course, all these shows we mentioned have been revived. Um, I was absolutely crestfallen when I couldn't get tickets to the revival of the Pajama Game, but I grew up on that show, and songs like Hey There, A New Town is a Blue Town, uh, which, of course, he sang in that show, and then Everybody knows the fun numbers like Hernando's Hideaway and Steam Heat, even if they don't know the show personally. But then he went on uh, after those shows, and he did 25 years of summer stock. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that was such an incredible gift to all the fans that couldn't make it to Broadway. And one of the things that sets my dad, uh, one of the most special parts of him is that he really didn't feel that you should ever do any preferential, you know, play particularly well when you hit both coasts or, you know, where the show business elite were, you know, he, he wanted to bring the shows to the people. And, and uh, you know, Carousel, Oklahoma, and Pajama Game were his mighty three, which he's most known for. But he went on to do On a Clear Day and, um, oh, you know, um, Music Man. And later in his later years, he did Shenandoah and South Pacific and Zorba and Man of La Mancha, as his, you know, with a full head of white hair and so handsome, and yet another round of heroic parts. But you know, Kiss Me Kate, and and uh, you know, toured back and forth across the country every summer, and that's where a lot of times we would get a week off from our summer camp and go and hang out with him on the road, which was really really fun. And um, you know, it was a, I think he played more uh, 
parts, leading man parts than anyone else in history. So he he lived and breathed Broadway shows, and it was amazing to me that he could he could actually remember the you know with with a little bit of study he could actually switch from sometimes he would do multiple shows in the same summer and and have to go one week from one to the other so it was pretty astonishing that he was able to keep that repertory straight all through his career well i would say so was there any trick you remember to him the way he learned and prepared his parts or did he just get them in there and there they were for all time well, he, we were very lucky that that he married our mom because she was a, a brilliant musician. She was his musical director and rehearsal pianist and accompanist on his concert stages and helped him pick his concert. You know, he did a lot of concerts as well as these shows. And he, and she would rehearse, and we got to listen to that all day, and I'm sure she ran his lines with him as well. And, and um, you know, they, they were really a partnership for the 30 years they were married, so all during my childhood. So we got to watch him kind of bone up on his, you know, try to make sure he didn't take the monologue from one show and accidentally slip it into another emotional scene from another, <laughs> which as the years go on, I remember he was laughing about that. But there was something in, in Shenandoah that reminded him so much of the philosophy of Zorba. <laughs> and, uh, but he did keep them straight. You and your two brothers could be turned Broadway babies, I suppose, but when you found your muse, you didn't head in the stage musical direction. How did your dad feel about your early explorations of blues and folk-style music? Well, I, I loved doing musicals. I, I learned all the songs and did them in school and camp, so he knew I fell in love with that. But folk music was really coming up at the time of my childhood in the, in the early 60s. Um, you know, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Bob Dylan, and Joan Baez were, you know, just icons, and all the kids in college that were my college counselors, you know, were playing guitar, and folk music was kind of a craze there in the late 50s and early 60s, so that really, it was very natural that I would come home from camp and want to want a guitar and want to learn to sing like Judy Collins and Joan Baez, and so he was very pleased that I got pretty proficient on it, and my mom never pushed me on piano lessons, but I asked for them, and I was playing piano and, and taught myself guitar, and pretty soon I was entertaining my relatives in the summer campfire, camp, you know, sitting around the campfire, and I, and I just was doing it as a hobby, and I think he was very proud of me. I mean, they, you know, as parents will do, they bring you out and play, play your piano piece for the relatives, and I would play my um, songs of, let's, can't we, you know, peace and civil rights and all that was married to how I fell in love with music. It was just part of my time, and then when I played the blues later in my middle teenage years, I fell in love with the blues and, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the rock music and R&B. And he just, I was just a regular teenager. I think the first time he heard me play in a club and I did Howlin' Wolf's song, I'm Built for Comfort, Not for Speed, that, that put a, both my folks were a little <laughs> surprised at the suddenly <laughs> so grown up and risque kinds of Mae West, um, Sophie Tucker, and all the wonderful Bessie Smith and blues songs that I loved. You know, they they sort of knew that that was part of my personality, but I'm sure it shocked them a little bit. But they were very, very supportive. My dad loved, loved what I did and, uh, you know, just always wanted me to get a little bit more sleep and not stay up so late. Well, of course, we're all <laughs> glad that you were, you know, at camp doing all this stuff because later you became a star of rock and popular music with nine Grammys and 18 albums. I would think your dad and mom both would have been pretty proud. It was pretty much a surprise to get uh, all of a sudden be offered a record deal and have a make a living um, at something that was basically a hobby. So, um, you know, I think that I, I definitely went into my family line of work and I, I fell in love with 
the joy of singing and, and the, the great inc- gift that it can be to raise money for benefits and, and bring, you know, as my dad did, I love to tour the, the smaller cities in the country and take take my music all around, as he did. I, I learned so much and admired him so much for um, really caring about musical comedy and taking it to the hinterlands and, and not not being preferential for money or being a big star or having a hit record or you know, only playing the, the the big significant cities. I mean, that just wasn't what he was about, and I think I learned a lot of that that connection to the to the regular fans from him. And I think that's why I still have a thriving career forty years into mine is that I I took my notes from him. Um, one thing that was must have been very satisfying, I think, for you in your relationship with your dad is that even as your career was you know um, really hitting hitting on all cylinders. He was still um, being, uh, you were both inducted into the Hollywood Bowl Hall of Fame, for example, in 2001, which was not long before he died. And, uh, uh, of course, you went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2000, and he was nominated for a Grammy when he was 80 years old. Talk to me about that a little bit. (laughs) That was a fantastic thing. You know, I I had spent a lot of my early career revitalizing uh, and bringing attention to some of the older blues artists who I felt had really been neglected or, or, you know, put aside, really, and we owed so much to these rhythm and blues and blues artists. And, you know, uh, John Lee Hooker had a big hit the same year. I won all the Grammys for Album of the Year and all that. And then I looked, and my dad was working less a little bit, and but still singing so great, and I went, why am I focusing on these older blues artists who I love when I've got this legend in my own family? There's a whole new generation of kids that and and even his older fans that they don't even know how great he still is. So he he made another album on Angel Records, which was a subsidiary of my label, Capital, and I sang three duets with him, scared to death, singing with the full orchestra as I had done on our PBS special in 1990. We played with the Boston Pops, which is with John Williams conducting. So that was the first time I'd sung with him, and then I got to do this recording, and lo and behold, we got lots of press, and he was nominated for a Grammy. It was my special guest on all my shows in California when I'd play L.A. He'd come up and steal the show coming out and sing Oklahoma. And the entire Hollywood Bowl audience or wherever I was playing, whatever size theater, you know, every time he would come out on the road, uh, they would just stand up and cheer and do rousing, you know, double choruses of Oklahoma at the end of my show. <laughs> so he was my special guest at Radio City Music Hall. I did a whole tour where he was my special guest on the Red Rocks beautiful amphitheater in Colorado and San Francisco and D.C. And, and the fans, became, you know, came to love him and love our, our very special connection on stage. And I, I, I still couldn't believe that every time we've sung together, I look across and go, oh, my gosh, I'm singing with John Ray. I, I've never, <laughs> ever got over the thrill of that. You know, Broadway seems hotter than ever these days, and you see it in even in the evidence of the popularity of shows like the television show Glee. How do you think your dad would view this sort of new generation of musical theater mania, and how do you feel about it? I'm I'm couldn't be happier, and I think my dad must wherever he is must be smiling just ear to ear. He's he's in. Uh, he really spent a lot of time mentoring young people. Um, you know, we, we, he has scholarship programs at U, U, USC. You know, he um, has the Rate Recital Hall at Pepperdine University. He spent a lot of time teaching master classes and shepherding the next generation of singers and giving them tips about singing and, and you know, acting. And, and, and he would be so thrilled with the 
resurgence and the exciting new era of enthusiasm for Broadway and for the history and for the new shows. And there's, I, I read somewhere how many, you know, thousands of applicants for theater schools there are now and, and theater departments and universities. So he would be thrilled, and so am I. I think the musical comedy is a, especially. Um, in a time when people are so focused on television and video games. Well, what do you think your dad would want people to remember him for the most? I think the thing that my dad would most want to be remembered for is is nurturing a style of singing that, that comes so much from who he is as a person. It's not, he really believed that singing should be, you should sing like you speak. It shouldn't, you shouldn't contort your, your vowels or your voice or no sound coming out of your chest into some kind of unnatural, you know, unbelievable way of, of making the music work. You know, it's just not work. It should be effortless, and you should believe the lyrics that you're singing, make the connection with the people that you're singing to, whether it's your your partner on stage or the audience. He sang from deep within a place that was just so natural for him, and I think that quality of power in his voice and emotion and the subtlety and his, his ability to control what seemed effortless really was coming from such a deep place and and I know that we've talked about that in singing when he's you know instructed me and I've asked him how he keeps his voice together and all that the other thing that I think is that he took care of himself physically he was a athlete and he always always really respected his body and he felt that if you took care of yourself and your health and your attitude, which is also he was incredibly positive, didn't believe in complaining. And he he came from that place, and that's why his voice lasted as long, is because he, he was vital all the way through uh, his life, and he was singing so beautifully even in his mid-'80s, you know, right up in... At his 88th birthday, at his you know birthday, he he sang, and and it was an incredible inspiration to me and to the rest of us. Well, I know here at the Library of Congress, we were absolutely delighted and amazed to be uh, getting his papers and making them part of collections that we hope will be used by people for centuries to come. In it makes research. me so proud to be. I mean, I I just I I was overcome with emotion when when that connection was made. And I'm so proud to know that people will be able to appreciate him and learn from him and that he will go on having this incredible legacy and effect of this glorious music and who he was as a person will be known and appreciated. And I thank you all on behalf of our family and all of those who love John Raid and have had it, been touched by the magic of his voice. We've been talking today with singer and songwriter Bonnie Raid who's just launched a website dedicated to the life and work of her father, Broadway giant John Raitt. That site can be found at www.johnraitt.com. In addition, the papers of John Raitt have just become part of the music collections at the Library of Congress, where they are available for researchers, including possibly you. <laughs> the John Raitt Collection is the newest addition to the library's unparalleled collections in the area of the American musical including those of George and Ira Gershwin, Richard Rogers, Oscar Hammerstein II, Frederick Lowe, Alan J. Lerner, Leonard Bernstein, Irving Berlin, Charles Strauss, Howard Ashman, Bob Fosse, and Gwen Verdon. You are welcome to explore these riches at the library's music division on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Bonnie Raitt, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jennifer. We're honored to be part of this wonderful institution.